So if you are uh, new with us this morning or um, have been kind of in and out, uh, haven't been around for a whole long uh, long while, uh, sometimes I use this whiteboard. Um, it is hopefully helpful to you. Um, selfishly, it's a little bit more helpful for me uh, so that I don't um, talk for four hours up here. This kind of helps me keep uh, myself on track, so I hope it's helpful for you. So this fall, we have been studying the book of Nehemiah, um, but in order to understand really all of Nehemiah, but specifically to understand today's passage, we need a lot of context. We need a lot um, to understand. We need to understand a lot of what's been going on that has led us up to this point. Um, and I'm not uh, exaggerating. Um, just don't get up and leave yet. In fact, we've locked the doors. You can't leave. No, I'm kidding. Um, but uh, we're going to cover the whole Bible today. <laughs> um, and I promise we're going to be out of here maybe by kickoff. No, we won't be out of here by kickoff, but... Uh, we're going to do our best to be good about this. So, I mean, like, I'm going way over here, like, to the edge of this to start this timeline. Um, and we are starting at the very beginning, and we are going uh, into eternity. <laughs> That's what it's going to feel like today for you. Um, and uh, we are here, 2021. Now, uh, this, this timeline is not to scale, okay? I'm not saying I know exactly when Jesus is coming back. Uh, I just know we're closer than, than it was at the beginning. Okay, so this is Genesis 1. This is where the story of the world begins. God creates this beautiful world. It's a blank slate. It's a tapestry. And he speaks beauty and goodness into existence. And after every line of creation, he says, and it was good, and it was good, and it was very good. And it was good because he made it. And it was good because he said it was. And so he's literally like beaming out beauty against this tapestry and creating this world where shalom reigns, where man and woman made in his image are delighted with him and they're naked and they felt no shame and it's beautiful and all of the senses, uh, all that it means to be fully alive and to flourish and to have joy and lasting peace and shalom in the world is happening in the Garden of Eden. Literally two pages later, Genesis 3, sin enters the picture and shatters the shalom that was intended to be in the world. And so Adam and Eve, who were the image bearers, who were set to uh, take rule and dominion and be fruitful and multiply, they have now not just cracked the tapestry, they have vandalized the tapestry. They have vandalized the shalom. And so all is shattered. All the intimacy that existed between man and woman and human beings to human beings, all the intimacy that existed between man and God, all the intimacy that existed between man and creation, the way that human beings were supposed to interact in the world, the way that we were supposed to treat each other, the way that we were supposed to treat God's good creation, all that's been shattered because of sin in Genesis 3. And then not too long after that in our Bibles, it's, it's thousands of years, but not too long after that in Genesis chapter 12, we meet a man named Abraham. And here's why we're going all the way back here, because even though everything's been shattered in Genesis chapter 3, the plan that God had for Shalom to reign in the world with his good creation has been shattered. Even though that's been shattered, God comes to Abraham and he says, hey, guess what world? Guess what creation? I actually haven't given up on the plan. I actually am not going to let sin destroy my good intentions for this world. And I'm inviting this family, I'm calling out this family, Abraham, to join me in my mission to heal to restore and to redeem the shattered shalom that happened in Genesis 3. Uh, that's a weird M. That's, there we go. Okay, um, so I'm calling Abraham and his family. I'm plucking his family out. And through your family, Abraham, I'm calling you to join me in my mission to heal and restore and redeem the world. And through this family, 
I will do that work. Abraham, I want you to join me. People of Abraham and his descendant line, I want you to join me on my mission to where one day all of that, all that shattered the world, all that crushed the world, all that made the world a shattered place will be made well. And one day we will say, all is well again, just as it was intended to be in the garden. And he plucks out Abraham's family and he says, through this family, I'm gonna do this work. And so, the people of God join God in his mission to heal, restore, and redeem the world. Fast forward from Abraham just a little bit, and we get into Egypt. God's people are taken captive as slaves in Egypt, and they're thinking, how in the world are we to be this people who heals, redeems, and restores the world if we are enslaved in Egypt? And God raises up this leader named Moses, and he says, not only are you to be my people who heal, restore, and redeem the world with me, you are now also going to be a saved people with me. And so I'm going to save you from slavery, from captivity, and I'm gonna take you to the promised land where I intend for you to to live out this mission with me as we heal, restore, and redeem the world as my plucked out family. Abraham had, sorry, let me back up just a little bit. Abraham had Isaac, Isaac had Jacob. Jacob's name gets changed to Israel. That's how they become known as the Israelites. So the Israelites that were enslaved in Egypt are now a saved people, and they're headed towards, across the the wilderness, they're headed towards the, the promised land, or the PL as I call it. They're headed towards the promised land where they will dwell and they will live and they will they will be on mission with God to do this in the world that has been shattered by sin. On their way to the promised land, the people of God stop at Mount Sinai and they are given a law. We call it the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. That's not all that they're given. They're given a bunch of rules and a bunch of guidelines for how they are to be this people in the world. It's not an arbitrary set of rules. God hates fun things. God's trying to be a buzzkill. It's saying, no, do you want to join me in this mission in the world? Here is the way you are to live in the promised land, living out this flourishing shalom kind of living with your neighbor, with your people, to take care of the widow and the orphan, to not oppress people, to save the poor, to be kind to the alien. This is how you are to be because we are on mission to heal the world. So they get that law on the way to the promised land. They show up on the doorstep of the promised land, and this story from Genesis chapter 1 to the doorstep of the promised land is the first five books of the Old Testament. Moses wrote it, or at least 95% of it. Moses writes it. It's called the book of Moses, but if you're an ancient Jew, if you're an Old Testament Jew, you call this, this Hebrew word, the Torah. The Torah is the first five books of the Old Testament. The Torah is the story of God's creation of the world, sin shattering the world, God going on mission to heal and restore the world by calling this family to join with him. It's the story of being enslaved and saved on the way to the promised land. That's the Torah. It's the story. It's a narrative. But this Hebrew word Torah means law. So we, we will hear, and we're gonna hear in our passage today, that this law of God, the law of God, when it says the law of God in the Old Testament, it's not just talking about the Ten Commandments. It's not just talking about the rules that make life easiest. It's talking about the story of what made God's people God's people. The story of them starting here and then getting to the edge of the promised land. It's the story of God restoring them. It's the story of God leading them to be his people in the world. Inside the Torah is the Israelites' identity. Inside the Torah is the people's mission in the world. Inside the Torah are the guidelines. It's a guide for them for how they are to be these people who are God's people on mission in the world. Okay, it's a lot, got any questions? We don't have time. Okay, so here's, 
<laughs> so after the promised land, they, they begin to settle in Canaan. They begin to settle in the promised land. And they've got about 1,300 years of trying to do and be the people of God who are on mission in the world to heal, restore, and redeem the world. But they have 1,300 years, and they fail at all of them. And what's buried in this Torah is the promise, the guarantee, that if you don't do these things, if you disobey these rules, if you don't follow me in our mission to heal and restore the world, you will be taken captive by your enemies. And so in 587 BC, they are. They've had about 13 or 1400 years since entering the promised land to try to be God's people in the world, and they failed every generation. And so finally in 587, they are taken captive by the Babylonian Empire. And here's what you need to know about Babylonian um, captivity. It's not just that this stinks. It's not just that not living in your homeland is hard. It's not just that, man, we had a sweet pad back in Israel, now I gotta live as this captive in, in, in Babylon. No, buried in captivity is the declaration that you have failed Israel at doing all the things that the Torah said you should be doing. Buried in your captivity is the knowledge, is the awareness, is the condemnation from failing for 1,300 years to be who God intended them to be in the world. People of God, you were to be my billboard. People of God in Israel, you were to be the people that healed people, restored people, redeemed people, and saved people from oppression, and didn't crush people with injustice, and didn't worship other gods, and, and, and helped mend the world, not destroy the world. They were supposed to be all that. They didn't do it. And so after 13 or 1,400 years of trying, God says, this is your discipline. You have been taken captive because you have failed in the mission to be my people in the world. So all hope is lost. The, the, the vision that the Torah sets for God's people, captivity means that they failed at it. And then after 70 years of captivity, a group of people, they've, they've like served their term. We meet Ezra and Zerubbabel and Nehemiah, which is the book that we're studying. And so here's why you need all of this intro. We did a brief one of these on our first week, but here's why you need all of this intro, especially for today, is because when Nehemiah hears and the people of God hear that Nehemiah and this group of people have set foot to head back to Zion, to set back to Jerusalem, to begin to rebuild the city of God in Jerusalem. It's not just that they get to move back home. It's not just that they get to go back to their old house. No, everything's been destroyed in Jerusalem. When Nehemiah gets to go back to Zion, when Nehemiah leads the, the captives set free back to come home to the homeland, they are thinking, is it possible that we could rejoin God in the original mission that we had when God called Abraham? Is there hope that God hasn't given up on us? Is there hope that God hasn't set us to be captives forever? Is there hope that we could be the people of God on mission with God with the rules that he's given us to be his people and his billboard in the world? Okay? So a lot is riding on Nehemiah's return back home because the people are wondering if we rebuild Jerusalem, we could be the people that the Torah says we should be. We could be the people that we were always intended to be when God plucked Abraham out and said, I want you to bring shalom back to the world. I want you to bring love and mercy and peace and flourishing and, and goodness and mercy all to the world. We could be that people again. So Nehemiah is carrying with him not just, not just the expectation, but the belief. We, we could do this. We could rejoin God in his mission to save and heal and mend the world. Okay, so it's this long intro, very long intro. Nehemiah has returned home. They've rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem. Chapter six, the walls of Jerusalem that we've been studying for the last three months gets completed. 
And it is a day to celebrate. Not just because, yay, we finished laying our last stone. It's a day to celebrate because, wait, maybe we could rejoin the mission that God had intended for us all along. And so the hope is there, the expectation is there, the, 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 like the giddiness is there. Let's have a day to celebrate and commemorate. Let's have a day to remember who we are. Let's have a day to reset our trajectory into the future of who we are going to be as God's people in the world in our capital city of Jerusalem. That's what we come up to, the ceremony of the consecration and the commemoration of this new beginning for God's people in the world. Got it? Okay, long intro for our passage. Taking way too long. All right, so here we go. Nehemiah chapter eight, verses one through 12. We're gonna back up one verse into Nehemiah chapter seven, verse 73. You're welcome for not reading all of chapter seven. Um, here we go, 773 through 812. This is where we are. The wall is done and the new beginning is amongst us. So the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, some of the people, the temple servants and all Israel lived in their towns. And when the seventh month had come, the people of Israel were in their towns. And all the people gathered as one man. Do you hear the unity? Do you hear the togetherness? They gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. It's about 40 or 50,000 people. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, the Torah, that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law and Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for this purpose. And beside him stood Mattathiah, Shema, Ananiah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and that guy on his right hand. And... Padiah, Mishael, Malkijah, Hashem, that guy, Zechariah, and Meshalem on his left hand. Hashabadana, golly, that's a Hashabadana. Uh, and Ezra, verse five, and Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, amen, amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. And Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Achab, Shebathai, Hodiah, Masai, Kalida, Azariah, Jazabad, Hanan, Peliah, and the Levites helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, stood or said to all the people, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. And he said to, then he said to them, go your way, eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing, because they had understood the words that were declared to them. Okay. So there's a lot, that we're, we're covering a lot of ground, I know. 
But let me just recap what was just read just briefly to help us to take a deep dive. The stage is set. The trumpets get out. The people assemble as one man in the city gate. They are there. They are ready to reconsecrate this new beginning. And here's some added emphasis to the new beginning of this moment. We're told that on the first day of the seventh month, she put a big exclamation point right there, First day of the seventh month was, historically, for the Israelite, the Feast of the Trumpets. It was the sign of new beginnings. It was their New Year's month. It was their, it's like they waited for this day to commemorate this first, this seventh, this new, this new start, this renewal, this another chance. We failed at being the people of the Torah before. Maybe we could join God and be who we were supposed to be on mission with him and follow who we, what we were supposed to follow. This first day of the seventh month speaks at the expectation of this moment. It speaks at the hope and the excitement and the anticipation of this moment. We have rebuilt Jerusalem. We are home again. We will be God's people. We want to do what God wants us to do. And this new beginning of the first of the seventh of the trumpets of the excitement is, is like bleeding through the ink on the pages. And yet, you would maybe imagine as this reading began, they would go a little bit differently. Because the people have this solemn moment. They ask for the law to be read. They ask for the Torah to be read. They say, will you read for us the Torah, Ezra, the high priest? Will you read for us the Torah this morning? And he's not reading the Ten Commandments over and over again. It says that he starts at sunup and he goes till noon. So you think I preach long, okay? He goes for six hours, okay? And he, he reads the law, the story, the history, not just of what God has done in the world, but who God's people are supposed to be, what their mission was supposed to be with him, and the standards and the expectations to be God's people in the world as they represent him to the world. He reads it for six hours. And I hope you can feel on this festivist day, this exciting day, this, the walls are done, the city's restored, the temple's here, let's do this. Listen to how they respond. Verse eight and nine. We throw this back up there, Will. They read from the book, from the law of God, the Torah, clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra, the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For the people wept as they heard the words of the Torah. Okay, wait, 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 wait. All the expectation, all the buildup, the returning from captivity. We were captive in Zion, now we're not, we're home. We rebuilt it, Zion is restored, we did it. The first, the seventh, let's do this. The people of God hear what they have come to hear and they weep. Why in the world would all of this celebration and all of this reading and all of this excitement lead to a weeping people. And th these are not happy tears, okay? This is, this, is, uh, this is the Hebrew word for like sackcloth and ashes, like face in the dirt. They can't even lift their heads. They are mourning and sorrowful and not doing okay. What's going on? Why are the people of God wailing inside the newly built walls of Jerusalem after all the expectation and all the buildup? What are they weeping for? There's a few layers here to the weeping. But let's try to understand this. And I want to try to get out of, I mean, I want us to go to this place and see if we can try to understand it, but remove, remove even just this historical moment from your imaginations for a moment. And just for you, just like 
21st century, 21st century? Yes. I always get that confused. 2021. Uh, we, we're here living and breathing in the world. Tell me what you do when you get compared with perfection. On any level, whether it's perfect beauty from a screen, perfect logic from someone you're arguing or debating with, perfect action from a peer, perfect obedience from a sibling, perfect grades from a classmate, what do you do when you get compared with perfection? When you meet a husband who seems to love his wife and kids perfectly? When you meet someone in your vocation that seems to be crushing their job perfectly and is better at it than you? What do you do when you see other moms in the way that they treat their kids with all the blogs that they've read and all the Instagram accounts that they follow and somehow they've mastered it? What do you do when you are compared with perfection? Well, one of the things we do, and please, please do not miss this, this happens, and I'm, and I'm trying to get you to see it. This happens, the reading of the Torah on the seventh first, this celebration, this day that was meant to commemorate and commence this new beginning. They read the law for six hours and the people of God have it explained to them from the Levites and they start weeping and no one told them to do it. No one's sitting there and saying, hey, this is being filmed, now's when you start weeping. They hear the law of God and their Pavlovian biological soul, emotional, spiritual response without anyone telling them what to do is to start weeping when it's read and explained to them. And so one of the things I know we do that we see in the passage is when we are compared to perfection, we turn our faces in shame. We cower we try to cover and hide. I meet with a lot of people, and sometimes in these really sacred, holy moments when people are sharing some of the darkest places in their stories, the most tender places in their stories, almost 10 times out of 10 when they're sharing those places, they're looking at the ground. I can't even lift my face to share this with you. Because when I know that, that, I, that there's this standard that I'm supposed to have been, when I know that there is this expectation of who I'm supposed to be and I haven't lived up to it, we turn our faces in shame. We can't be next to perfection because perfection immediately exposes all the places that one is not perfect. We cannot be next to perfection because perfection immediately exposes all the places that one is not perfect. So if you go back to the Torah, it's not just that this is the holy word of God and so it's inspired. It is. It's the divine document. What I'm saying, though, is, is that when you read it out loud, you hear the perfect expectation of who they were supposed to be, of what mission they were supposed to be on, and how they were to live their life as those on mission with the Lord to heal and restore and redeem and mend what was, what was broken. So when they hear this story read for them, at the commencement speech, at, the, at, the, at the, the new beginning of Jerusalem, when they hear that read, guess what they're hearing? 
They're not just hearing all the ways that they were supposed to, to be living. They're not just hearing, oh my goodness, that's the standard and I can't compare to it. They're not just hearing, oh my goodness, I'm supposed to be that way and I don't know if I can do that. What they're also hearing is that, hey, remember our ancestors were also supposed to be that way? Remember the vision that the Torah gave them that they were supposed to be in the world? And remember how they failed for 1,300 years at it? Remember what that did to them? That was their discipline and punishment for their disobedience. And so if they failed, what makes me think I'm going to be any better? Just because we built this new wall, who cares? It's just going to get burned to the ground again because we're going to fail at being this type of people. Because the perfection in the Torah that is expected of the people to be God's billboard to the world, to show the world that he is the God that heals, restores, redeems, and saves, to hear that, that we're to reflect that to the world. They immediately know, just like we do, when you're compared with perfection, it immediately shows them we will not make it. And so it doesn't just immediately expose them for the failures that they know that they are. It also condemns them for the punishment that their ancestors had. So they're weeping because they've been exposed and they've been immediately condemned. And that is why their faces are in the ground. We know what we are supposed to be in the world. And you don't have to tell me that I'm not perfect. You don't have to try to give me a bunch of examples where I don't live up to this standard. Oh, and by the way, thanks for the reminder. Our ancestors were held up to that standard, to the Torah's vision of Israel in the world, and they failed. And guess what happened to them? And so now, these Israelites who just returned to, and give their lives away to join God in his mission to mend and heal the world, their faces are in the dirt because they know they are no better. Why are we even doing this? This is a giant waste of time. Surely we'll, we will not make it. Surely we will not reflect God to the world in the way that we were supposed to. And so they're undone. Because being next to perfection immediately exposes all the places that one is not perfect. And it carries with it, not just the exposure of that, but the condemnation that they know led to their former captivity. So they're condemned people with their faces in the ground. Now, I'm not gonna sit up here and read the Torah for six hours. <laughs> Maybe. Uh, I'll do it, okay? Um, but if I were to read to you, like we're not the people of God living in Israel, having all this history with us like these people. We haven't just returned from captivity and rebuilt a city. But kind of plucking out the, like, the, 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 the reality of what was going on for them and then applying it to us, if I were to read to you all the ways in which God's law required perfection of you, that if you want to claim to be a Christian, if you want to claim to belong to Jesus, if you want to claim to be on mission with God in the world to heal and restore and redeem this world, if you want to claim that, what if I were to read to you the expectation of those that claim that they belong to the kingdom, the expectation of members of Christ's body are to be like? What if I read for you all the beauty that was held in the expectation of who you are meant to be and then showed you that beautiful mirror and had you compare yourself to it? That's what the Bible says about itself. One of the things it says is that it's, it's a mirror. And the darndest thing about mirrors, they can't lie to you. 
right? Like, <laughs> I remember getting dressed. I told this story a year or so ago. I remember getting dressed for a date. Uh, and I, like, put on this shirt that was kind of one of my favorite shirts. And I was, like, kind of standing in front of the mirror. And I was, like, trying to get it, like, tucked right. I was, like, babe, I can't really get this tuck going. Like, the tuck doesn't look good. And she said, are you sure it's the tuck? Uh, so um, a, mirror, a mirror cannot lie to you. It's not the tuck. Uh, that a, the mirror of God, the mirror of God's perfection and of God's beauty, when held up to you, it shows a 360 of you and shows you all the places that you are not like what you are supposed to be. We're laid bare. We're laid vulnerable. All of our imperfections are showing that if I showed you all the patience he required of you, you want to be like God? You need to be a perfectly patient person. You want to show the world what God is like? You need to be practicing patience every second of every day. If I showed you all the mercy that God extends and you are to reflect God to the world, and you need to expend mercy not just to your friends but to your enemies, if I were to show you the empathy of what it means to represent God in the world, to go on mission with God in the world, and you are to represent him and his empathy and his gentleness. But what about all the loyalty? Let me show you what perfect loyalty looks like in the person of God, and let me hold up the mirror of perfect loyalty, of never deceiving anybody, of always telling the truth, all the purity that's required of you. If you're looking into that mirror, and not just took a glance in it, but stared at it for six hours. And you knew our ancestors tried this for over a millennium. And what makes us think we're going to be any different than them? Maybe you'd weep too. Maybe you'd weep and mourn at the dashed hopes of what you thought you could be or what you thought the world could be. Maybe you'd weep and mourn at all the insecurity that it exposed in you. Maybe you'd weep and mourn simply because the shame of what you've done or what's been done to you would now be seen and we're all trying to hide our shame. And so what happens if I can't hide it? What happens if like it's read out loud at me for six hours and I know that that's what I'm supposed to be? What if you're naked and have no covering? And let me just say this, I'll just say that if you've never stood before God and never felt exposed, if you've never wept before God over what his perfect standard exposes in you, then I would just say you've, you've either ripped some pages out or you've never really stood before God. And this is hard, this is, this is, this is really hard. Because what would, I, what would you say if I told you that not only did they weep and did they, did they mourn at what the Torah being read out loud for six hours exposed in them? What would you say if I told you that this response was the intended response of the Torah? Like one of the reasons that the Torah exists, the New Testament tells us this, one of the reasons that this exists in its form is to make you weep. I don't like that, Jesus. Wait, 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 wait. Romans chapter five says to us that the law was given that the trespass might increase. The law was given so that when you compared yourself to the law, your sins would stack up against you. 
but I want a God that makes me feel good about myself. I don't want a God that an intended purpose, says the law, Romans chapter three says that the law was given to close every mouth, meaning the law of God was given that if you read it and understood it like these people did, you would have no defenses because there are things about each of us that are indefensible. I can't justify this away. I have acted in such a way. And so the law of God, its first purpose, its first purpose is to create this response in you. Part of the Torah's purpose is to undo you. Part of the Torah's purpose is to wreck you and humble you. Again, please remember, Ezra and Nehemiah are not standing up and reading the Torah for six hours and going, all right, I don't really see the movement. Now's when you weep. Like, we need this for the story to work. Like, can y'all start? Like, they're just reading it, and they're explaining it. That's what it says. They're clearly explaining it. Here's what it says. Here's what that means. And so after six hours of it, this is the response, and the Bible will go on to say that's the proper response at first. A weeping people a weeping people that perhaps are being liberated from their purely self-confidence, a weeping people that are being liberated from their addiction to their performance, from their addiction to their accomplishments, from their addiction to their capabilities. The Torah is exposing them with all of its perfect beauty of who they were meant to be and saying, you don't line up. But the story doesn't end with people weeping. They have this huge first day of the seventh month celebration, new beginning. It's a new us, new year, new me. Like this is going to be us. They start weeping for two verses, hours and hours. And then, but listen to how the story ends. Let's jump to jump to verse twelve real quick. Will this this is where this is how it ends for them. This day, this commencement moment. Verse 12, and all the people went their way to eat and drink and send portions, that is, like send stuff to people who couldn't afford to have food and wine, and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. Okay, so wait, here, clue. The Torah is read on this first seventh day, and the first response is to weep, but then the second response is rejoicing. And why did they rejoice, it said? It said right there at the end. Because the word, the Torah had been properly explained to them. So there's another purpose to the Torah. It's not just to make them weep. We clearly understood what the Torah said, and then, then we began weeping. And then the Levites and the explainers and the priests, they come and go, hey, that's not all that the Torah is saying to you. They got up and they left there celebrating, rejoicing, because they had understood the words that were declared to them. So there's another response to hearing God's Torah read to you. So what happens? What happens in between the weeping that leads to their rejoicing? What do the Levites and the priests say to the people with their faces in the ground to get them to stand up and to start partying? What happens in verse 9 and 10 that transforms their sorrow and their tears and their weeping and their exposure and their condemnation into rejoicing? Verse 9 and 10. And Nehemiah, who was governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the Torah. Then he said to them, go your way. 
eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready for this day is holy to our Lord and do not be grieved for because the joy of the Lord is your strength. Do not be grieved for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Let me translate that literally for you. He says, for the joy of the Lord, literal translation, is your, all caps, protection. It's the literal translation of that word. Okay, your face is down because you've been exposed and condemned. You've seen what is not good in you because of the vision that the Torah gave of who you are supposed to be in the world if you want to represent God in the world. But stand up. Lift your face. Weep no more. For the joy of the Lord is your protection. And here's what that means. That as much as the Torah may expose you, as much as the Torah, the standard of being God's people in the world may condemn you, there's something else in the Torah that is not the end of the story. Because buried in the Torah are also the hopes and the promises that the same God who gives the law that exposes will be the same God that atones for his lawbreaker. Because God promises that not only will I expose where you are weak, not only will I show you all the places that you are not like me, I also want to show you those places so that you know where to find your real covering. That the law of God rightly condemns you, but the same God who gave that law will also be your defender. And the law of God certainly exposes you. But the heart of God will also protect you. Like what, what if the law was given first to expose you so that you might run to the Lord who intends to cover you? What if the law wants to show you who you really are so that you can finally see him for who he really is? Yes, one of the purposes of the law is to get you to lose your confidence in self. One of the purposes of the law is to get you to lose your defenses. But another purpose of the law is that you would do that and then you might find the Lord to be your protector. This is what he promises. The joy of the Lord is your protection. So if that's true, when and how is the Lord gonna be the people that belong to him, when will he be their protector? So again, as much as the Torah might promise to expose and condemn us, the Torah also carries with it the promise of one day, one day one would come who would succeed in all the places where Israel had failed. One day one would come from this very line of Abraham, one would come from this line, and he would be the perfect representative of who God is and what he's like in the world. One day one would come and he would fulfill all of the law's demands. One day one would come and would be condemned for being a lawbreaker, but instead of passing on that condemnation to the guilty, he would be their protector instead.
that one would come, Jesus. And you need to know that the, the Torah, as much as it is filled of God's law and his perfection and what he intends for his people to be, also in the Torah on just about every page is the whisper and the hope that one day a Messiah would come. One day a Messiah would come and he would be the one who would keep God's law perfectly on your behalf. One day a Messiah would come and the Torah is whispering the hope of him on every page. The perfectly obedient Jesus would take the condemnation that you deserve. And on the cross, it will be the place where the wrath of God will be poured out on him instead of you. And also at the cross, it would be the place where God is your defender, where God is your protector. In the words of Karl Barth, famous German theologian, he said, the cross is a place where God both uncovers and covers our shame. That this is the place where God says, hey, hey, do you want to know what perfection looks like? Do you know what it, what it looks like to actually represent me in the world? Do you want to know what perfect righteousness looks like? Do you want to know how I haven't given up on any of that standard? Look at Jesus. Because he represents who I am to the world. You want to know what Yahweh's like? Look at Jesus. But that same Jesus that exposes us because we're not like him is the same Jesus. He not only uncovers us, he says, let me take all the places that have been uncovered for you, let me take all those places and cover them with my blood. All the places where you are guilty and condemned and exposed, let me atone for them by my life and death for you. And so here's, here's, here's where this begins to like radically reshape how we see ourselves in the world. That we have a God who exposes us and protects us. We have a God that reveals our sin and he defends us. We have a God that unmasks us and he shields us from any condemnation or shame. So Midtown, would you join this great rejoicing? Seeing yourself through the lens of the cross as one who rejoices that their sin has been uncovered and covered. Would you see yourself through the lens of Jesus now? the one who lived the life that you couldn't live and died the death that you should have died. That the book of Hebrews would say that for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross for your sake, despising its shame. Would you stand up and receive the joy of the Lord that comes from him delightfully being your protection? And so now we join this rejoicing. We rejoice now knowing that one day we will join a great rejoicing. That's how the end of this chapter says it. We will be a people that one day rejoices at all that God has done on our behalf. Like Daryl said in our call to worship, it will be a place where sorrow is no more, but joy is eternal. What was your exposure has now become your boasting. So we're gonna practice that. We're gonna practice rejoicing now as we look to the day where we will, we will, we will behold in the great recession, the great communion of all that our God has done for us. Let's pray. Jesus, we're tired, so tired from trying to cover our shame where we have been exposed, so tired from, I'm so tired from trying to atone for places that I might try to forget what I've done. But Jesus, just like these Israelites, you come and you lift our heads. You are our glory and our shield, the great lifter of our heads, and you say, I have paid for all of that. I have fulfilled the law's demands on your behalf. Now stand and celebrate and feast with me. So as we rehearse for the great feast that awaits us one day, 
Make us a rejoicing people this morning, I pray in your name. Amen.